Open up in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. While you're turning there, I want you to think back, way back for some of us, way back to when you were a kid. Think about Christmas as a kid. Do you remember the anticipation and the joy and the excitement for Christmas morning? Do you remember the hope? Hope I'm going to get that that thing that I want, that thing that I asked for, that thing that I've been looking forward to. I, I hope I'm going to get that. Do you remember ever on Christmas morning being disappointed? Remember those Christmases where it's like, I asked for this really cool toy and I got like the knockoff version that my friends are going to laugh at me for. Remember that? Do you remember I asked for this really cool thing and instead I got like a pair of socks? Do you remember as you started getting a little bit older and some of the excitement starts to wear off a little bit? The presents become more practical, which is great. I'm mostly saying this to prepare my kids. Um, but, you know, it's great. It's so helpful. It's not all exciting anymore. And then I don't know about in your family, but my wife and I have a hard time buying stuff for each other because it's kind of like if we really needed something, we we would have gone out and gotten it. And we, there's just not a whole lot that we really need that we think, oh, I just wish I had this. We're kind of like, yeah, we're good without it. And so it's hard to get excited to buy stuff for each other. And I hope, I hope that as we get older, the hope changes. Like it, it gets refocused away from the gifts and onto where it should be over Christmas onto Jesus. And I, I think there's kind of a natural life cycle of being excited over Christmas that, that helps with that. It's not so much about all the gifts. It's about the gift of Christmas. And hopefully, our hope becomes more focused. And so, we're continuing in our sermon series this morning called Focal Point. And in the sermon series, we're looking at an overview of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And and we have come to the point where we're just right before the birth of Jesus Christ. And, And yes, that was planned. That seemed to work out well for the year. Now, it's interesting because I sat in adult Sunday school this morning in Bill's class, and Bill is finishing up a study on Malachi, and he talked about the time right before the end of the Old Testament, and then the time between the Testaments and how it leads up to the birth of Jesus. And so I, I said it there, and I'll say it again. That class, you're, you're free to sleep through this sermon. You've already heard it. Uh, Bill taught it, and I'm basically going over the same things. He was, one after another, as he was saying things, I, I was thinking, well, there goes that point. Yep, there's, there's that point in my sermon. That's Okay. So you guys can tune out, but the rest of you, you got to listen. I found in general, when you give someone permission to sleep, they're more apt not to. (laughs) It's like our rebellious nature. Well, now that I can, I'm not going to. But I want to talk about where we are in scripture. If if, if you've been with us or if you haven't, just to catch you up, we, we started with creation. God created us to be in relationship with himself. We rebelled talked about kind of the dethroning or the, the attempted de-godding of God, this rebellion against God that is human sin. We looked at the effects of that. We looked at how God called Abraham into a relationship with himself. 
how God's people become enslaved in Egypt, and then he, he saves them miraculously through the Exodus, brings them into the wilderness, and meets with them there. We looked at how he gives them his law and kind of defines what their relationship's going to look like, and then they're settled in their land eventually, and things are going great, it seems, until they're not. And we have the time of the judges where it's just the seesaw of good and bad and good and bad, and then they get a king, and he's not so great. And then they get King David, and he's really awesome. And then they get King Solomon, and he's kind of, hey, he's pretty good. And then after Solomon, everything falls apart, and the country splits into two kingdoms the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we have this ping pong during the time of the kings and and the chronicles where, where we just hear about these kings and how awful they were and how bad their ancestors were and how they led their people into more and more sin. And then we moved forward to the warnings. God warning his people, they need to come back to him. And if they don't, they're, they're going to go in exile where he will refine them and discipline them. And of course, they're taken into exile. They're conquered by foreign nations. And we talked last week about their time in exile and how hard it was. And their hope, their longing to go home. This this hope that was focused on one day, Jesus, or God rather, was going to take them home. So now we want to pick up the Old Testament history at this time when they return back to their land and and they're waiting. They're thinking, now this is it. Now things are going to be better. Everything is going to work out okay. Except sometimes hope becomes disappointing. Sometimes the thing that you hope for turns out, even if you get it, to not really be the thing that you hoped for. And I want to talk about that what happens when hope is out of focus and what happens when we are disappointed in our hope and how at those moments, in those times, God often has a plan to focus our hope on what is most important. So we need to start by talking about wrongly focused hope and how it disappoints us. Because as we come to the end of the Old Testament, and, and hopefully, if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Nehemiah 9, we're, we're in the last pages of the history of the Old Testament. You might be looking at your Bible going, man, Pastor Dave, we're a long way from the end of the Old Testament in Nehemiah. So the Old Testament starts with the history books, and then we go into some of the prophets, or the Psalms and poems and some of the wisdom literature, and then it ends with the prophets. So we're in the history that is at the end of the Old Testament. And then at the very end of the Old Testament, you have the three prophets that are kind of the last. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, But I want to look at some of the history in Nehemiah chapter 9. So to set the stage and why hope was so desperately needed, things were just so chaotic in Israel. They had a long history of chaos, of not knowing what was going to happen. And as they are in exile, hoping to go home, we looked at this last week, God comes with this beautiful promise in Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What a great thing to hear when your world is falling apart. God's like, no, no, it's going to get better. And we love that promise. And it's a good promise. But in the same context of that promise, God also tells his people, I am going to rescue you from your exile, but not for 70 years. And he tells them for 70 more years, they're going to live in exile. 
But God is at work. There's some big movements going on in world history. The Babylonians that were the last to conquer the people of Israel, well, they're conquered by this group called the Persians. And a new king comes along and he has compassion on the Israelites, or at the very least has some political plans that just benefit him to have compassion on the Israelites. And he allows them to go back to their land. I don't think we can imagine how hopeful they must have been in this. I mean, we think about Christmas and and how hopeful we are for this, but they get to go home. They had been gone for generations. They had been struggling under this foreign occupation, but they get to go back to their own land and rebuild. And they have several waves of people returning to settle back in the promised land of Israel. And we read about these things in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm sure there was this idea. This is it. Things are going to be different. Have you ever faced one of those moments in your life? Been through struggles. And you think, this is it. I'm going to be different now. Things are going to get better. The situations will be different. But sometimes, sometimes that hope struggles in the face of reality. They return home to a broken land. Broken cities. Broken walls. They return to a demolished temple, the centerpiece of their religious relationship between them and God, and it's in rubble. They return to find as well that they haven't changed all that much. They're still struggling with sin and rebellion. That that new leaf that they were hoping would be turned over really didn't get turned all that far. And we have these books that we can look at to read these things. So let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9. Because in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah preaches a sermon. And he's trying to focus their hope. And I want to move very quickly through this because he gives an overview of Old Testament history just like I was hoping to do throughout this sermon series. So we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1. Nehemiah was one of the people that had led a group back to Israel and uh, helped them to establish themselves in the land. But he saw how much they were struggling, how much they were oppressed, and how much they were struggling even with their own sin. So let's walk through this together, starting in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing a sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. He's gathering them together for repentance. And that's an important aspect of focusing hope. We need to start by understanding that our hope gets easily distracted and put in the wrong place. And so he's trying to focus them. And I want you to see what he focuses them on. If we skip down to verse 3, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Scripture focuses our hope. He's reading from the book of the law. That's their scripture, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's reminding them of how good God has been to them. And then if we skip forward to verse 5, he says, uh, And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. 
And so they're trying to focus them on praising the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. When we are struggling with a misplaced focus, we need to set our sights on worshiping God, repeating to ourselves who he is and what he has done. If we go on in the chapter, uh, verse 6, he reminds them of how God created them. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, and the earth that is all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. He goes on to talk about the call of Abraham to this relationship. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the out of Ur of the Chaldees and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Do you hear what he's doing? I hope you're hearing some common things from the rest of the sermon series. These are things that Nehemiah is reminding them that God has done in fulfillment of his promises. We look at how God has led them along the way, that he rescued them out of Egypt. He's reminding them of this. How God gave them his law in verse 13, came down from Sinai, spoke to them from heaven. Again, he's reminding them of this long history that they have with the Lord. In verse 16, though, he reminds them that they rebelled against them. They rebelled against the Lord God. But they are, our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say, But even through that, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them to the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor did the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. So even in their rebellion, as As the Old Testament history was going on and they were struggling, he reminds them, God has been with you every step of the way. And then if we skip down to verse... Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 22. uh, God gives them the promised land. He, He reminds them of the covenant with Abraham. In verse 22, he gives them descendants and the nation grows. In 26, Nehemiah reminds them they still struggled in their faith. In verse 30, he reminds them why God sent them into exile. And then 31, he reminds them of God's mercy to them, that God has always been faithful and is carrying out his plans and his grace and mercy. So why? Why is Nehemiah saying all of these things to people that are struggling? To people that are doubting. Why doesn't he just come in and say, oh, it's okay, everything will get better. Why go back and remind them? Because he is focusing their hope. He is focusing their hope on who God is and what he has done for them. Hope is rightly focused when we remind ourselves of all God has done. Not too long ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. One of our traditions as a church is the night before Thanksgiving, we get together and have a service. And and the focus of that service is giving thanks, giving testimonies of what God has done throughout our life and in recent moments. And it's a reminder to ourselves and to those around us, God has been good. But another thing we also need to remind ourselves of is that we have struggled. We have at times faltered. 
We have at times disobeyed. Because our hope should not just be put on us and our circumstances. It should be put on God and what He has done for us and keeps on doing for us. Because hope is rightly focused when we are able to admit we don't have it all together. We are in need of God's grace and His mercy. Turn back with me to Ezra chapter 9. I want to look briefly at another Sermon. It's really more of a prayer that is done publicly so that others can hear. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Ezra, as one of these other leaders that has brought a group back and is working with people there in the promised land, he realizes that they are still struggling in sin. And he is confessing this publicly before the Lord in repentance. In verses 8 through 9, he again reminds the people how good God has been to bring them back into the promised land. And then verses 9 to 12, he says, or verses 10 to 12, he says this, But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the Lord's command. You gave through your servants the prophets when you said, The Lord you are entering to possesses, or the, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. This might seem like an odd thing as we prepare for Christmas. Why are we talking about intermarriage in the land? Is this like a racist thing? No. It is a religious thing. God knew if they came into that land and intermarried with people that worshipped other gods and other goddesses, their hearts would be pulled away. But there's something else to it that I'm not sure in our modern ideology we recognize as easily. And, and I actually heard this. It came up in Bill's class. I think somebody else was teaching it at that time. No offense. But... Uh, but that we were talking about a passage in Malachi where, where God was chastising his people because of intermarriage. And somebody made the comment that marriages were often made for political reasons. They were arranged marriages. And if you wanted to get in good with this family that maybe had a little more authority, well, you might arrange a marriage between your son or daughter to their son or daughter. And so these intermarriages between God's people and the people of the land were part of God's people not trusting in the Lord to provide. And instead they were saying, well, maybe if I do this, my life will get better. I could have a little bit more influence, a little bit more power, a little bit more authority if I just pull these strings. They were trusting in their own efforts instead of trusting in God. And in verse 15 of Ezra chapter 9, He says this, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand 
in your presence. Here again, we have this time when, when God is focusing his people, the leaders, leaders of God's people are focusing them back on a real and true hope, but the method of doing that is calling them to repentance. Friends, there's a huge modern trend And it it has infiltrated the churches even. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. But on the other hand, there's also a huge trend. We need hope. And we do need hope. We cannot skip over repentance and think we're going to get to real and lasting hope. Hope that is truly focused is reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done, reminding ourselves of how desperately we are in need of him and that he loves us and has given us everything necessary and possible to stand in his presence unashamed and unafraid through his son, Jesus Christ. This is why the Old Testament history is so helpful. We're reading our own stories. Yes, it's a different time and a different culture and a different people, but we see how God was faithful to his people. He's still faithful today. We see how they struggled and how we are in many ways just like them. Our hope gets out of focus over and over again. This right here, this really summarizes where the Old Testament ends. The time period, The historical time period of the Old Testament ends with a hope that is very disappointing. Where are the promises? Why weren't they fulfilled? God, where are you? What are you doing? We came back because we were trying to be faithful. And where are you? Everything is falling apart. God's promises to Abraham are unfulfilled. God's promises to David that someone would rule on the throne forever and ever. There is no throne. There's nobody ruling on it. That promise is unfulfilled. Sometimes, sometimes in those moments of disappointment, whether it be with our family, our culture, our society, our churches, whatever it might be, when we go through those times of disappointment, we need to remind ourselves Maybe my hope has been focused in the wrong place. There is a glimmer of hope during this time. Because the prophets that were active during this time kept giving this message of hope. God is going to send someone. And along with that was a message, God himself is going to come. And he will rescue his people and he will save them from their sins. But before we can get to that next week, we have to deal with one other time of biblical history that's actually not in the Bible at all. I call this the difficulty of delayed hope. This is the time between the Old and the New Testament. It is a time of 400 years. 400 years. Now, again, I like to put things in perspective. My brain cannot conceive of 400 years of history. So I like to relate it, relate it to something that I I, I at least know a little bit about. I looked up 400 years ago. Do you know what was happening in American history 400 years ago? Well, number one, there was no America. The pilgrims were stepping off the Mayflower 400 years ago. That's how long of history we're talking about. 
400 years. These are often called the 400 years of silence. Because from the end of the Old Testament time and, and these last prophets in the Old Testament, there's 400 years where there's no prophecy, no word from the God, from the Lord, no direct connection or communication from God to his people. 400 years of silence. Now, that's not to say that nothing was ever written down during this time. Nothing was ever recorded. The Catholic Church recognizes some books written during this time as Scripture. As Protestants, we think some of those are helpful books. They're books. They're just not Scripture. They're not the Bible. But some of them are very helpful. The book of 1 Maccabees in particular. I highly recommend Christians read the book of 1 Maccabees. It is excellent history about the time between the Testaments. 2 Maccabees, not so much. Written by a different person at a different time. I don't know why they link them together. It's, it's different. But it's very helpful. And there's some great history that's very helpful to know. There's this little-known guy in history, uh, maybe you've heard of him, Alexander the Great. Kind of a big deal in biblical history. He comes along and he overthrows the nation of Israel and the people that were over them at that time. Greek becomes the predominant language in that area. And then Alexander dies. And his empire that he had conquered is taken over by four of his generals, two of which are important for the nation of Israel, because Israel becomes kind of this battleground between these two leaders. During this time, there's somewhat successful revolt, and it doesn't really work out that great. The Romans then come in, and they conquer the Greeks, and Israel has a new superpower over them. And this is where, when we get to the New Testament, it's why things look so different. Because a lot has happened in 400 years. Different groups were formed during this time. The Pharisees show up in the New Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament. But this group of the Pharisees, they develop during the time between the Testaments. They want to bring back the Old Testament law. Get people back to God's word. Because if we could all do the word of the Lord and be faithful, then the Messiah will come. Let's clean up our act and then God will come back. It's not a bad idea. It was very poorly executed. Because what happened was that the focus shifted from praising and worshiping and trusting God. And it looked and focused it focused on let us do right things so that we can stand unashamed before the Lord. And it became very, very legalistic. Another group that develops is the Sadducees. Another religious group, their idea was let's keep Israel going by, yes, trusting in the Lord in the Old Testament, but let's also kind of give in to the Roman occupiers. Let's be a little more like them. And they became very liberal in their theology. What's very interesting is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees absolutely hated each other. Hated, they were bitter rivals and envy, uh, uh, bitter rivals in the politics of Israel in the New Testament. And yet, when you read the New Testament, I want you to watch how many times you come across the phrase, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees did something together. They hated each other. See, Jesus brings together even his enemies. He is a way of uniting people. Another group that comes up are the Zealots. The Zealots were people, and this kind of comes from the Maccabean Revolution, uh, the Zealots were people that sought to overthrow the Roman government through basically terrorism. 
They were freedom fighters. They would do strikes against Roman outposts and bases. There was a subset of the zealots that were known as the Sicarii. They were assassins. They would carry a knife in their belt and execute a public official and then walk off through the crowd. These are groups that developed during this time. Another group that developed, I'm just going to call Roman sympathizers. Jewish people that thought, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. One of the ways to do that was you could get really wealthy by joining with the Roman government to collect taxes from your own people. As you could imagine, people hated these people because they extorted extra money from their own people. They made themselves wealthy and they were working on behalf of the government that everybody hated. The reason this is important is that as you read through the Gospels, as I said, you see the Pharisees, you see the Sadducees, but you also see a zealot, a zealot who hated the Romans and hated anybody who had anything to do with them, and he sits down at the same table with a guy named Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. Those two must have really had some interesting discussions. But do you know what brought them together? Jesus Christ. These roles or these people groups play a big role throughout the life of Jesus. And they set up many of the things that happen in the New Testament. But the predominant idea through this 400 years is waiting. When is God going to fulfill his promises? When is he going to act? When are things going to get better and change? We stand here today and we look back on the manger. We look back on the crucifixion. We look back on the resurrection. We have seen some of those promises fulfilled in powerful, amazing ways. And many of us are here today saying, I am a Christian. I've been saved by Jesus Christ because of those followers. But guess what? We're still waiting. We still have promises. One day Jesus is coming back. One day he will reign on this earth forever and ever in all poverty and oppression and crime and murder and sickness and sadness. It will all go away. And we're waiting. And during a time of waiting, we can get easily distracted. We can set our hope on lesser things. And we can allow those lesser things to divide us. We can allow those lesser things to pull our focus off of Christ and pull our faith onto things that we have a bit more control over. We need to take care during times of waiting. We need to be careful because still today we can struggle with having our hope out of focus. The Old Testament ends with great disappointment. It's like there's this building crescendo throughout all of the Old Testament that never reaches any sort of conclusion. It just sort of hangs there. At the end of the Old Testament, they're in the land, but they're still basically slaves living in a land occupied by somebody else. Their religion is showy and empty. They are suffering and struggling and waiting for God to do something. But there's an echo of these words of the prophets that wrote during the time of the end of the Old Testament. That one would come called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
that one would come that would take the throne of David and rule on it forever. And it is this message of hope that an angel speaks to a group of shepherds in Luke chapter 2, 11 through 14. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And the words of the angels are the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. Focusing them on that baby that would be born in the manger to save us from our sins. But I can't get too far ahead of ourselves here. I think maybe next week, since it's Christmas morning, we might want to look a little bit more at this baby born in the manger. But for now, I want you to think, where is your hope focused? What is it you're really trusting in? What is that thing that you think, if this would just change, then everything would be okay. Everything would be all right. And I want to challenge you, as I believe God was challenging his people over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Keep your focus, keep your hope focused on God. He knows what he's doing. He has been orchestrating all of history according to his perfect plan. Trust in him. Where is your hope focused today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are easily distracted people. And I think as such, we can identify with your people throughout the ages. We, we like to read these stories and think how foolish they were. Well, if I had been there, I would have done things different. I would have been so much better. And God, I pray in humility, you would help us to remember who we are and, and how we've lived and the struggles that we have. Not to live in guilt and, and being beat up, but to live in repentance and not allowing our hope to rest on ourselves and what we do. But I pray that you would grab hope, grab hold of our hope and focus it on you. The unshakable truth of who you are and how you've worked throughout our history, from the garden all the way up to the time of despair in the Old Testament and time of frustration through the 400 years of silence. To that moment of joy when the cry rang out, the Messiah has come. And God, as we wait today, forgive us for our distractions. Forgive us for the ways we run after so many other things. Help us to remain focused on you. I pray, Father, that this Christmas would be meaningful. And that we would use it as a time to remind ourselves that baby born in the manger is your son, Jesus Christ. And he is our only hope. Because of what he would do on the cross to pay the price for our sins and what he would do through raising from the dead and the empty tomb to conquer death and promise eternal life to all who believe that must be our hope. So I pray today, refocus our hope. In your name we pray. Amen.